I'm Marie Stone, and this is Writers on Writing. So I've always been interested in anthologies and collections. I love books that are a chorus of voices aimed at one topic. And we've done a few of those on the show in the past, most notably around incarcerated authors. But I wanted to talk to someone who specializes in this form. And Rachel Cater Nailbuff is that woman. She is a writer, an editor, and publisher who works at the intersection of oral history and performance and public health. Her book, Stages, is a hybrid collection of writing and interviews with end-of-life care workers that has been described as truly revolutionary in both form and content. As an editor, she has created Our Red Book, the subject of our talk today, and the New York Times bestselling My Little Red Book. Each of these books weave together over 80 voices from teenagers, midwives, scholars, Olympic athletes incarcerated writers, people from our transgender community to talk about periods, uh, not the punctuation mark. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to talk about first periods, last periods, missing periods, and more. She also co-edited the Feminist Utopia Project, and she started Three Whole Press. Hopefully we get a chance to talk about that too. Rachel currently teaches nonfiction writing at Yale and Mm co-directs a drama program for seniors. Our Red Book, Intimate Histories of Periods, Growing and Changing, came out in November. It is published by Simon & Schuster. We will also talk editing, anthologies, book proposals, publishing, and more. So there is plenty of great and kind of new stuff in here for uh, for all you writers out there. Before I bring her on, a quick reminder that we're now offering some great perks on Patreon. After doing the show for almost 22 years and hitting nearly 1,000 episodes, we started the page to get more hands-on and direct contact with our listeners. Hopefully the show has boosted your writing in some way and given you some useful advice. If so, look for us there. You can see all the benefits by visiting patreon.com slash writers on writing. Any level of support helps us out and we appreciate it all. On with the show. Rachel, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So my little red book came out when you were a freshman in college which just strikes me as like amazing to be publishing an anthology as a college freshman and makes me think that, you know, books and publishing and writing and editing were, were kind of in your DNA from the beginning. (laughs) Um, Is that true? true? Uh, Well, I definitely think I became a writer and editor because I, I started doing it at a young age. I mean, I, I kind of fell into it as a family archival project, collecting oral histories around menstruation in my own family. And I never thought that it would end up being a book, but actually there was such an appetite and need, I think, for people to talk, especially at that time, about these stories that had never been shared um, in my family. And then that kind of led to other family friends talking and talking in their own families. And it really just felt like opening the floodgates, so to speak. <laughs> and so, I mean, I, I think I became a writer kind of through the process of making this, yeah, family oral history project that then became a book when I was a teenager. And tell me a little bit about that that process. So once you had the book put together 
and you knew that it was going to be published. I mean, just just that whole publication process when you were so young, like how, sort of how did, how did you know? Yeah, what I, I, you know, this is really a lesson about like the importance of teachers and having the right like special English teacher. They are life changing, as I'm sure all, <laughs> many listeners on this show would agree. Um, I had an amazing high school English teacher who kind of noticed what I was doing and said, you know, I think this should be a book. And I think that your family's stories would speak to other people. And I also think, I mean, just, I'm pretending to be her. <laughs> I also think that <laughs> because you're still in high school, you actually have this power and ability as a young person to write to the authors and people you admire and ask them to share their stories and they might listen because there's something compelling about, you know, at the time, especially menstruation was much more taboo than it is now. And so I was very close to the experience of having just had my first period. And so, and and she was right. So kind of together with her, I sort of like a, as a side project in high school, I wrote to some of my favorite writers at the time, including Judy Bloom and Gloria Steinem, um, basically explaining that I was this high school student and I had started working on this family oral history project, but that I thought that maybe this could be a book and especially it it, it would have a bigger chance of reaching more readers if, if their words were in it. And that their words would also inspire other writers to reflect on their first period. And that then this could really become a conversation starter for many more kinds of readers. And yeah, so I I put together a book proposal with this high school teacher also as like a kind of, as my like final assignment in class. And I remember her saying like, this was also going to be a good chance for me to learn how to deal with rejection. Mm-hmm. And no one thought this was ever going to be accepted. Um, it was totally fringe. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I had like 20 stories that I had collected that were in good enough shape for a proposal. And that's really how I viewed it. Um, <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm learning about the kind of the, the real world just the, the the logistics of what it means to make a book. And I have no expectations and there's something kind of beautiful about entering the process that way. And one day when I was at soccer practice, I got a call from an agent who was like, let's, let's try this. I'm interested. Let's, this is going to be my passion project. So, so that book kind of miraculously came together. Um, but it really started as, a much as a very humble storytelling project, all instigated and inspired by hearing one story from my great aunt. Yes, I want to get into that. Mm-hmm. Remind me if that first book was published by Simon and Schuster as well. That book was published by 12 Books, which is now owned by Hachette. And um, yeah, they're a, a wonderful publisher. They publish one book a month, so 12 books a year. So they gave that book their their full attention. And that was, yeah, so wonderful to work with them. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So let's hear about that initial story that that sparked you. I know your, your own story kind of sparked this, but then that, that led you into your family's own oral history. And I'd love to, I'd love to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. So 
basically, um, you're right. I, I got my own first period in a way that I thought was the worst way you could ever, it could ever happen. I was 12. I was visiting my widowed grandfather. I was supposed to go water skiing with him for the entire week. as like a bonding activity. And like on the first day I got my period and he was already a very quiet man, but he became so quiet and I internalized his shame immediately. And he drove me to a pharmacy without speaking about this ever and just dropped me off in the parking lot and said, go inside and figure it out. And I remember I was so embarrassed. I didn't even want to ask anyone to point me to where the pads were. Definitely wasn't ready for tampons. And I couldn't say those words. And I think, I mean, a lot of it is societal. Mm -hmm. And But I grew up in a pretty open household. So it was still pretty strong. And, 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 And that has changed to some degree, but also not universally, I would say. All to say, when I got back, home, my mom, with the best of intentions, basically announced to my extended family that this had happened to me because she thought the story was funny, which it is in hindsight. (laughs) And I was horrified and felt so betrayed. And my great aunt, who was a hidden child during the Holocaust um, and had lived through so much history, kind of took me aside afterwards and took me into her bedroom and said, okay, listen, I'm going to tell you a story that's going to put your story in perspective. And she proceeded to tell me a story she had never shared with anyone about how I knew that she had fled Poland, Nazi-occupied Poland, and I knew that she had left on this train to go to France where she grew up. Um, But what I didn't know was that she actually got her first period on that journey And that it had happened at this kind of horrific moment when at the German border, the train was stopped and all of the women were strip searched by SS officers because a lot of refugees and Jews would hide jewelry and especially kind of Jewish jewelry in their body cavities. And so this is horrible, traumatic incident. And my great aunt actually just got her period while waiting in line naked in line and the officer ended up skipping her examination and that was her first period (laughs) and I was so shocked and it was also just this moment where like time totally collapsed and she was older than time to me she was like this wrinkled tiny shrunken lady with droopy ears and spoke in this very high voice. And suddenly I was like, oh, I can picture you as a 12-year-old, as someone my age. And there was something about that story and the shame she felt then. Her mother immediately, they kind of raced inside and covered it up and no one ever spoke of it. Her her twin didn't know the story. And sorry, her brother and her sister didn't know the story. And just the degree that this was completely covered up kind of shocked me too. And I think I I was only 12 at the time, but I think it kind of illuminated. It was sort of my feminist (laughs) consciousness raising moment, because even though I had been so embarrassed only like a week prior, it was so evident to me that this story was a vital part of our 
family history and a way of kind of understanding the trauma of that journey, what she'd been through, where we come from, and that the fact that she had never told it and was in her, gosh, 70s, 80s at the time felt um, alarming. And I sort of started wondering, what is going on here? Why? Why is this story considered forbidden? And what would happen if she shared this story? What other stories haven't I heard? Are there other stories in my family that also need to be told? And that's kind of exactly what happened. Hearing this story prompted this. And I think this this has happened consistently as I've been working along the sort of same theme of menstruation is that when you hear a story like that, it prompts a memory and response, often also something that's never been shared. And so all of the other women in my family immediately did share their stories after hearing this with each other. And that was a kind of amazing experience. And I became like the 12-year-old archivist. (laughs) And so many of these stories, and my great aunt kind of illustrates it, are not I mean, they are about periods, but they're really about our culture, how we were raised, our families, and they are so rich. And I immediately felt so connected to everyone in my family in this way. And so I think because of that, the question around like, how is there a way to share this, this spark with others emerged? And I think that's one thing that books can do. And I was really shy and incredibly introverted and I still am. And so I loved books and I think books are such a vehicle for um, being able to touch on the unspeakable and kind of pry open a door. And you can do so much in that kind of quiet space as a reader, um, before a reader. And so, yeah, that, that was kind of how this project began, which then evolved into our red book and has sort of shaped my own career. Yeah, I mean, I feel like shame, it's such a a universal feeling and be a great motivator for human emotion. And that seems to be what, what we're talking about in a lot of these uh, various permutations of shame and why that's the case, why, why we've Mm -hmm. put so much shame around, you know, when our society has no problem talking about sex. We have no mm-hmm. problem talking about violence. We have mm-hmm. no problem, you know, looking talking about gun violence, you know, some things that are really much more in your face, but periods, oh my God, you know, it's it's a, such a taboo topic. And I'm like, why is that? But mm-hmm. but it is. Mm-hmm. And so when did you understand that a second volume, because you know, 2009 both feels like yesterday and prehistoric yeah. when the yeah, first book came true. out. So a lot has happened and, you know, maybe maybe both nothing has changed and everything has changed in those interim years. But tell me about understanding that this needed another volume and what the differences you saw over that course of time looked like. Yeah, um, well, I kind of knew pretty much immediately when that first book came out that there were there was a need for another book a more expansive book my relationship to that evolved also over time but when my little red book came out i was really shocked at who was most excited about it and eager to read it i had made it kind of with myself in mind thinking about other teenagers going through the experience feeling alone 
and, and isolated and wanting, you know, a young, yeah, teenager to feel like encircled by these voices of people who'd gone through the experience before them. But instead, I mean, I think that that did happen, but I was, I, I just hadn't anticipated that a lot of other readers would also be interested, including like single dads, I think were some of the most vocal readers mm-hmm. who wrote to me and said, you know, I, I have no stories of my own to share. I've been looking for something like this, um, this is such a resource. And that was kind of its own story that became, I, I was interested in, but it wasn't really until years later that, that a lot of things sort of coalesced. I mean, I also, over this time, because I had started on this book as, as a teenager, as I grew older, I just kept hearing stories. People kept telling them to me because of this first book. And I think as I grew older, I started hearing stories about different stages of life, um, kind of as I was going through it, and also just have the capacity to understand from stories from like my elders that were especially heavier and darker stories about the way that trauma affects menstruation. And, you know, after someone dies, you know, I, I heard a story about someone who immediately went into early menopause, or someone who got her period after her father died. Also, I started hearing stories from trans friends as my own friends started transitioning for the first time. Their stories started kind of coming my way. One friend asked me, um, this was right after graduating from college, and they were just starting to transition like, you know, did you ever hear any stories about period negativity? And I said, I don't even know what that means. And they basically explained like, you know, this idea that not all, not all relationships to menstruation even have to be positive. Like what if it's, what if the goal isn't necessarily celebration? Because for me, I have this dread that I feel every month around my period. It's a reminder of my biology and how that doesn't line up with my identity. And maybe that's okay. Like, I think I should be allowed to feel that period negativity. And I had this immediate feeling of like, that's what books are for. That's what writing is for. Please write this down because other people need to hear this too. And this is like the kind of writing and personal writing that is, I think is almost kind of, is almost healing um, both for that writer, but also for a reader to encounter. And so I eventually heard enough stories that I, I just had that kind of response of like, please write this down. Will you please write this down? And it grew into something that was about so much more than first periods. It became evident that shame and also silence floods pretty much into the rest of our lives and doesn't just, isn't just limited to being a teenager as I had imagined as a teenager. (laughs) Um, And that there is, as you said before, the, the through line of menstruation and silence whether it's menopause, it turns out that menopause is is actually even more misunderstood uh, topic than menarche than first periods. I interviewed an OBGYN as research for this book, and she said that her older patients are more lost and alone in the experience than teenagers. And some of the, I think, some of the more powerful stories in this volume are 
about the experience of menopause. And there's no one menopause story, of course. Um, but yeah, from from that to missing periods and and miscarriage and transitioning, there's so much. There's so much that people feel alone in. And I I wondered if there could be a much more expansive book. And if I grew up loving this book called Our Bodies Ourselves. Oh yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. A classic. Yeah. And I one of the things that I really loved about it was how you could kind of flip through the book and discover all of these other parts of life, sexuality, the body, stages of growing and growing older that you weren't in, but that were, you know, down the line. Um, so you would open the book because you really wanted to read about like masturbation or something, but then find yourself reading about like breastfeeding, you know, just just randomly because you're flipping through it. And that's actually kind of how you learn um, by sort of wandering through a book. And so I wanted to create something like that. This is not a practical, this is not designed as like a, a practical guide. It's, it's, it's a work of literature, but it's not limited to kind of one stage of life. So my hope is that like a teen reader would still actually enjoy perusing the book and reading stories from, you know, a contributor in her nineties talking about what it's like to, to not have her period and and reflecting on on that and the kind of freedom <laughs> but also and, and and the other perspective in the book that's i think important to mention is that i really i think the world is really ready now in a way that it wasn't in 2009 um to welcome in readers from across the gender spectrum so of course trans readers but also cis male readers and everyone is so intimately connected to menstruation and it's no longer just about breaking the silence. I think that the the like the next frontier is really about making it evident the ways that fathers and sons and brothers are also intertwined in all of these stories. In my little red book, they were characters in almost everyone's story. <laughs> right, right. Um, but we never kind of invited, I never invited men to participate because at the time and for the first edition, it felt, I don't think the world was ready for it. And it felt more important to have uh, folks who menstruate share their own personal experience. But I think we're in a different moment now. And there are these very moving and beautiful, and I think illuminating accounts from fathers in the book about how kind of uninformed they were and unprepared they were. And another account from a father about actually the beauty of being a single dad and being able to talk with his daughter about it and the honor that he felt of of sort of being her her like shepherd through that experience and how rare that is and these stories are so moving and beautiful and um reflect the reality of our country and of parenthood and i think kind of point the way towards where i hope we're heading in terms of just having this be a subject, a part of our lives that we can all discuss. Yeah, it's kind of amazing to me that a book like this doesn't really exist out there apart from the, you know, it, there's a lot of abortion stories. There are a lot of, uh, as you know, as we mentioned, manuals about sex, but there really aren't that many books like this. And it, it did 
make me wonder a little bit about that of, you know, why the absence on the shelves of, of important books like this? We'll be back with more from Rachel Cater Nailbuff and our Red Book in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Another quick reminder to check out our Patreon page. If you're liking the show, if you've learned any tips that may have inched you closer to publication, whatever it is, check us out at patreon.com slash writers on writing. By becoming a backer for just a few bucks a month, you can get some weekly writing tips and prompts. Once again, patreon.com slash writers on writing. Let's get back to it with Rachel Cater Nailbuff talking about our red book. really appreciated the expansiveness of geography and different cultures takes on on periods which are so much you know we live in such a weird I think mm-hmm. puritanical society that you know there's shame around the wrong things and not enough reflection around some things that we might yes. <laughs> might benefit from reflecting on more yes so yeah it really you know the the chorus of voices as I mentioned at the beginning is it's across age and gender but it's also across geography. And I thought that was really fun too. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about structuring it. Did you kind of cast a a really wide net out there to see what, you know, what fish came back to you and then organized it? Or did you, were you pretty pointed in, you know, I want to talk about this topic and look for those people? Well, maybe I can tell you a little bit about the structures that I tried that didn't work. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Well, first, I just want to say, I think the anthology is such a tricky form. And because I was really thinking about how this could speak to a teen reader, I was kind of obsessed with this question of like, how can the anthology be riveting? How can you want to read it cover to cover? How can you enter because maybe you're interested in one story, but then you are sucked in. And I also thought it would be really important. Um, it was really important for me to make it evident that this isn't a comprehensive collection. This isn't like, you know, no anthology is ever comprehensive actually, but I wanted to be especially transparent. It just felt like this book is so personal and it actually did start from such a personal place. And I am this human behind the scenes, assembling these stories and gathering them. And it just, it feels politically important to also make that evident because even though there is a huge range of voices in the book, they're all one or two degrees away from, from my personal life. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's sort of the structure of the book. So I I wanted to make that clear. So I'll kind of, I'll kind of come back to that, but I also was struggling with like, how do I make my kind of my, like my feminist (laughs) structure and that idea transparent to someone who's 12 (laughs) or someone who's, you know, a busy new parent um, and someone who's not going to read an introduction and someone who's not necessarily like interested in those questions, <laughs> but how can it be like baked in to the reading experience? So I had those questions in the back of my mind and the original structure that I had for the book proposal was actually like, 
I'm going to structure this book. I think it's going to go in order of stories from like that are filled that kind of are about shame to, and, and it's going to migrate and evolve towards stories that are about liberation. I think that was how I like imagined it mm-hmm. to kind of take us on this, this more emotional journey. But then as I started hearing more stories, it just felt like there's no hierarchy actually of, of stories. And also I think I, I kind of wanted to show that like time doesn't necessarily improve things. We're not on this like linear journey of progress and that there are as many stories about shame. Yeah. That was my idea that there are as many stories that are so defined by shame now as there were in like the 1940s. And while that's true, what, what ended up happening once stories kind of came my way is that Within each story, it's not clear how you would categorize a story. (laughs) There are many threads all at once. Like even in the story that I shared with you about my own first period, like you can't put it on a scale. (laughs) So that idea, I quickly kind of threw out the window. And then a sort of similarly limiting structure was I was thinking about age. My next idea was like, Maybe it can be organized by age, and that feels like such a clear, simple, beautiful structure. There will be, you know, this beautiful collection of stories from like 12 and 13, but also then, oh my gosh, it doesn't stop because there are stories about sex in, you know, 15 to 25 in pregnancy. And then, you know, do you just see like at these different ages how these stories evolve and change? But then when I tried kind of organizing stories that way, it was also clear that once people start talking about menstruation, it's like pulling up this thread that connects profound moments across our lives. Mm-hmm. Reflecting on a first period, my a story that I love in the book comes from this contributor who grew up in Russia and reflected on how she got her first period while getting a tonsillectomy in Mm. Russia. And she just, and this was probably a a trauma-based response, started bleeding from every orifice of her body in this hospital in Russia. This is like very dramatic account. But then the very bookend of the story is kind of her reflection on how also in Russia, there's so much shame and humiliation around menopause. Uh, She says women fear aging more than death that um, a lot of her friends would actually hide the fact that they had gone through menopause from their own husbands. They didn't want their own husbands to know that they were as old as they are and would put liver in their underwear to kind of create this illusion of having a period. And it was at this moment of like, should I trim this part of the story so that it fits into age 11 (laughs) right right. or should it go under age 55 or I think I have to abandon this concept (laughs) and that it's kind of just like opening this can of worms and the way that these stories are linked is so be and she kind of wanted to draw this thread to say like it doesn't necessarily get better over the course of your life which I think is so important to see so, so I'll just say I had, I had, and there were, I think probably even more, <laughs> but finally 
I landed on this structure that had that feeling of like it being inevitable and right and obvious, but it took so many tries to get there of ordering the stories by the way that they came my way. Uh And starting kind of at the beginning with stories from my family and then stories from kind of extended family and friends that they pointed me to. And in uh, anthropology and sociology, people call this kind of like the snowball effect of like, you know, you kind of build a bigger and bigger ball. I, I think of it very much as like a web. So the book is kind of structured like this web that starts from my from my family and then kind of goes outwards. And I also decided that I should kind of weave uh, my own voice between accounts and often tell the story of how an essay or an oral history came my way because I was so involved in gathering these accounts myself and really felt like for years I was on this goose chase of someone telling me, okay, um, I have this story that you thought was interesting, but really you have to talk to my hairdresser. And I would be like, okay, I guess now I'm going to meet your hairdresser. And then the hairdresser would remind me that, ah, gosh, I needed to you know, I, 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 I was, I was really on this kind of adventure. And, and so now that's the structure of the book. And I didn't know how it would end. I, I, I fell and I, I kind of realized that this would be the structure about halfway through the process. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just was like, well, I, I'm waiting for <laughs> the ending Universal. and Yes, the universe will reveal itself. And um, I, I mean, I found myself in wild conversations. The most, I think, extreme and most far removed from my personal life was I ended up interviewing the former health minister of Scotland, who was behind Scotland's national policy to make period products universally free. So Scotland became the first country in the world this past year Um, to have menstrual care products be freely available in every public facility. So to end basically under their constitution, it's considered a form now of discrimination if you don't have free menstrual care products. Um, And this is really groundbreaking legislation that hopefully sets the stage for, for other countries to follow But yeah, So I'll just say I I ended up quite far (laughs) And that conversation and interview was inspired by talking with youth activists in the U.S. that were just working on the on their own high school level of trying to get their principal to get free menstrual care products in their school, and were looking for inspiration elsewhere. But yes, finally, I I ended up actually in the. I mean, I'm. I feel like maybe this would interest you since you're interested in the craft and the behind the scenes. The ending kind of came my way because I was. I was in the process of getting permissions from pieces from my little red book. There are just a few stories that I wanted to reprint um, that would, that were the very first pieces in this new book. Uh Um, And one of them comes from Zanette Lewis, who is an amazing, was an amazing uh, social justice activist in New Haven, where I grew up. Her story is incredible and kind of touches on, how in her family, her her she grew up hearing stories about her ancestors who were enslaved Black women in the South who, when they got their first period, it was the moment that they were sold for breeding. Mm-hmm. And it's this horrific history. And 
So growing up for her, a first period also kind of symbolized this both weight, this very dark history, but also kind of freedom at the same time. And another way that I feel like it just is so evident that these stories need to be shared and they tell us so much about our history culturally and as a country. But I was I I was looking for um, just the permission to reprint this really important account. And on this like logistical quest, I ended up learning that her granddaughter had just gotten her first period and wanted to kind of share her story and reflect on her grandmother's story, which also kind of opens the book. So her granddaughter's story um, closes the book. And it's it's a very lighthearted story that feels like a world away from her grandmother's account. But she kind of ends with this reflection about her grandmother's story and how connected she feels to her grandmother reading this story. Her She never really got to know her grandmother as an adult. And it kind of illustrated for me what these stories do for us, how they connect us. And that also, I think I was also just like, I, yeah, it, it just felt like a bookend, this full circle. And um, I, I mean, this book could keep going for forever and ever. But that felt like as good of an ending as you can find. Yeah. You know what, what it felt like to me? And I've been talking to writers recently about, I don't know if you know Jane Allison, but she wrote this book, Spiral. I always forget the name, Meander Spiral Explode, something like that. And it's Mm -hmm. about the structure that books can take. And I was thinking of that in terms of an anthology. You know, the the novel is is traditionally that, you know, climax structure, which Mm -hmm. uh, she views as very masculine. Mm -hmm. And so a book like this felt to me a little like having your period which starts yes. out and then yeah. there's this intense flow in the middle and then it tapers off. And that's yes. kind of how this felt with that circular motion and, and the beginning and the ending mirroring each other. And yes. I thought it was a really beautiful way to reconsider structure from sort of a feminist point of view instead of a masculine point of view. And I didn't know if you had any thoughts yes. along those lines too. I, I love that. I mean, I think of it as circular, cyclical. And so, of course, those are connected to menstruation. And I think the book also has, there's there are other kind of feminist aspects of it too that I, I think are important to mention, which is there are some more well-known contributors in this book. And I really wanted everyone to stand kind of on equal footing. Mm-hmm. And so everyone's story is introduced by the contributor's first name. And those stories are organized in the way that I just described, where it's how a story came my way. It's not like they're first in the book and they're really embedded and woven in. And so I I, I just, I think that that's also important to mention. I, I really wanted, um, yeah, this book to be something that you're kind of carried through from start to finish, as opposed to just going to find like Judy Bloom's story. And I think part of that is, was my own work as like a writer and editor, kind of reflecting on these accounts, how they came my way, how they affected me, what I learned. I really also use myself as, and my boyfriend, (laughs) especially as, as kind of a comedic foil for how much there is to learn about this aspect of life. And so many, I mean, my the kind of litmus test for me for a story was do i have a deeper understanding now 
the human condition? Um, did I, was I moved in a way that I could not have anticipated? Did I learn something that I could not have learned any other way from hearing this story? And so it felt also important to not just be this neutral, invisible editor for this anthology, but really to be very open and honest about what I didn't know, what I learned. And so, yeah, a lot of, a lot of that kind of interstitial writing is, is just, is mostly me saying a version of like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, Yeah. yeah, Wait, why did no one ever tell me this? Um, (laughs) And that, you know, makes me want to learn more about this topic, which then leads us to the next story. So so yeah, I think just that transparency is also, is, is, I think of it as a feminist gesture. And the other part of this book that was really important was that I paid all of the contributors. Um, everyone was paid a thousand dollars for their piece. Mm. Um, and so that was part of the reason, yeah, that I was so excited about um, having it be published with a bigger publisher really wanted to value these stories. It was also put together some of it during COVID and it was just such a hard time for writers and artists. And it felt like if the point of this book is to kind of say in an, on an artistic level that um, these stories really matter, I also need to really value them. And yeah, yeah. So, so all of that, but I, I, I think the circle and the spiral are kind of my favorite ways of of structuring it's like we kind of end up where we start but it's we're also in a different place but changed yeah Yeah, Mm -hmm. right so tell me a little bit about the editing because you know not everybody's hairdresser is a is a necessarily great writer yeah and you definitely want to keep their voices but not I imagine everything that comes to you is exactly how you might print it so tell me a little bit about that delicate touch of editing that you had must have had to go through yeah Yes. Yeah, so this is also really where I kept also thinking about like my teenage reader. I was, I really wanted the pieces to be short, digestible, something you can read with like a sort of social media attention span. Right. So they're not all the same length, um, but a lot of that does have to do with editing. And so m- I would say maybe a half, a third to a half of the pieces in the book started out as interviews and oral histories that I conducted and then edited. So I think that also lends an actually very beautiful, readable quality to the writing because these stories were originally spoken. Yeah. Um, So they're very immediate, they're accessible, and they have this kind of quality of telling someone a secret that's hard to exactly articulate, but just is there because that's how they were told. Um, And I think another part of why those, those stories I think are compelling and, and why I gravitated to that form was precisely what you just said. Not everyone identifies as a writer, but almost everybody has everyone who I was pointed to had a really remarkable story. But, but when we speak every, everyone, I mean, I also think everybody has a remarkable story. That's the other the other truth behind the book. And that for centuries, these are the stories that have been shared and whispered in the kitchen <laughs> late at night uh, in a car. And so I, I wanted to kind of capture that quality. But 
a question across all of my work is how, how can we be compelled to care about a stranger's story? And so, yes, so much of that is just is editing and it's cutting this, something down to its essence, but all while preserving voice. And so there were a lot of, in some cases, some back and forths, and some people wanted to tweak a few things. But for a lot of those accounts, it was really me editing, you know, an hour long conversation into two pages. And then for other pieces, every every process was very different. I really wanted there to be voices from current high school students. Some of those high school students just wanted to talk. Others were are incredible writers. Um, some of my favorite accounts are from writers, um, young writers whose writing just blew me away. And I basically had no edits because their stories were so full of feeling <laughs> um, and humor. And, um, and so those were very, very light processes, but yeah, also behind editing these accounts, I think the fact that these weren't just like mostly anonymous solicitations, but rather people who I was pointed to from someone from some mutual connection just meant that there was a little more trust for me to propose edits to what are often the most like intimate, vulnerable stories of people's adult lives so it was it was a very intimate process and I ended up writing about that too in the book of just editing these stories took so much asked so much of me I also teach writing and I mean I think of editing as like a very intimate sometimes therapeutic exchange where often clarifying a sentence is really about clarifying a feeling or something that the writer hasn't really addressed internally but editing these stories some of the stories are so heavy and I felt so connected to these writers and what they were trying to articulate and describe and I was so relieved when this book was published it just felt like finally these necessary accounts that needed to travel weren't just like in my word document and I wasn't the the only kind of interlocutor and translator, but that they just, they needed to move. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience as an editor, but I, I felt like I was carrying 90 very beautiful, but also often very heavy stories just inside of my own person. And I think like, I've heard this from therapists that like after sessions, you know, you need to kind of decompress and have like little rituals around like untangling. I was so tangled with all of these writers and it feels really wonderful now um, that the book is out. I feel like it's a big untangling. (laughs) And we should also mention that you include some amazing art in here. So there's some graphic, it looks like people who might have been graphic uh, novelists who have some graphic pieces and some photography and some really great art. And I thought that lent, you know, just a really nice different texture to it. And I, I didn't know if you sought that out or if that was just what came back to you and you decided to include it. Yeah, well, for a lot of the people who I was um, kind of pointed to, I didn't want to tell them how to share their story. And I also didn't want to tell them what story to share. 
I just knew that they were the right person to talk to, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so one person that I'm thinking of, for example, is an Olympic skateboarder. And I just trusted that she would have something really fascinating to say. Also, because these stories are so intimate, I think you used the word like fishing earlier. Like I really didn't want to feel like I was fishing for like one you know, I didn't want this to feel extractive. I wanted it to feel illuminating for everyone who participated, like the, the process of writing this would illuminate something for them. So just for this one contributor, Alexis Sablone, for example, I think I said, you know, is there any memory around menstruation that you want to share? And is there a way you would want to share it? It could be an essay, it could be an interview, it could be a poem, it could be whatever you want it to be. And she immediately like I, you know, I've been getting really into comics. I would love to try this out as like a kind of graphic novel story. And her piece is incredible. And I feel like she must write a whole graphic memoir. Yes. Yes. Um, it's so readable and delightful. And every panel is like a treasure hunt. And there's so much there. But yeah. So I think it, there was just this kind of intuitive exchange for everyone involved so that was quite I think challenging in terms of just the traditional publication process because I really couldn't predict what the book was right. going to look like yeah I was going to ask how the publisher was going to going to react to they, that. they they were blessedly like very patient with me but I kept changing <laughs> <laughs> what it was under their feet um which I I just yes I I was it, it was a part of the process. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's also talk a little bit about book proposals and what those look like and what stage that happened for you. Because typically with nonfiction books, and I think anthologies, you don't have the whole book completely done as you would a novel. Is Was that the case with this or did you yes. have? A- yes, that was the case. I basically had heard a couple stories, maybe 10 stories that had come my way. I had heard many stories, but I picked about 10 that had come my way since the publication of My Little Red Book that felt like they spoke for themselves in terms of why there needed to be a much more expansive kind of book. I proposed it with that structure that I described of like organizing stories from kind of shame or silence into like openness. And I had written an introduction, which I didn't end up using along those lines that I also described earlier of like, actually, I don't think teenagers read introductions. (laughs) So how can I incorporate my introduction throughout the book, basically? So the book ended up being quite different from what I had proposed, but but I think that's quite common, actually. And did you have to get blurbs and all that kind of nitty gritty stuff or it, because you had a little red book before, I wonder if some of that pressure was taken off of you for the second, second one. Yeah. You know, blurbs, I, I feel so lucky because no one asked me to find blurbs and I'm so grateful because I had this vision, which also I'm so grateful that both the UK and US publishers were down for of having there just be these fragments from stories on the back cover. Yes. Right. So that a reader picking this book up, I just felt like that would capture what the book is so much better than a description of the book. 
and that the diversity of voices, of ages, of geographies, of language. So there are so many different languages that are spoken in this book of sensibilities, of humor, but also incredible weight of poetry and also political import. All of that is immediately understood just from these tiny phrases. Um, I'll just read one or two because I'm holding the book. My doctor said that because I was underweight, I'd stop developing, so I never ate. One little blurb. There's no happy ending where I learned to live with periods and accept them as part of myself. Um, that's from a teen trans contributor. This was the, this next, next one. This was an opportunity to be the dad who didn't freak out. So immediately you understand like there are many genders involved. There are uh, many different emotional relationships to menstruation. And so there are no blurbs on this book, which I think it feels right. I could see this as a play. I know you do a three whole press and I know they specialize in plays and playwrights and oral sort of oral tradition in books, but I could sort of see this as an oral tradition in books on a stage. I don't know, like vagina monologues or something. Yeah. I wanted the stories that kind of also sparked the like real motivation for this book was that the, my little red book was turned into a play and I saw a production of that in Mexico city that was so beautiful. It was staged by a real family who are all actors, a grandmother, her daughter, and her granddaughter, wow. who they're an incredible family and wow. they're quite well known in Mexico. And they just like gravitated to my little red book and wanted to take this on. And it was so beautiful. And the audience was filled with people of all genders. Wow. Like people went as their whole family. And I just seeing that was sort of this, this something clicked where I was like, oh, we're in a different moment. That was just in 2019. We're really in a different moment if all kinds of people want to hear these stories. In um, Mexico. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And in Mexico and also maybe in the US, we're not there yet. We're not there um, that's definitely a theme throughout the book. It's like, wow, the U.S. is really behind. Um, we're so behind. And as you said, it's there's the puritanical culture runs very deep and is under every rock. Yeah, but I, I hope that that happens with this book. And um, so stay tuned. We'll see. I love it. <laughs> Well, and we can follow you. You have a great website and it's got a lot of information on there as well as, you know, more information on Three Hole Press. And and you've done a couple of online interviews. I don't know if there are other ways to follow that you want want to shout out to. Um, yeah, my my website is, a, is, is a, I would love to point people there. I also have a newsletter um, that I update, you know, pretty infrequently, but just about upcoming readings and events. And I also run this small press for performance texts um, that I, that are kind of literary. So plays and performance scores that are really meant to be read. My short spiel for it is basically that theater is so siloed and yet there are incredible writers working in that space and most people outside the theater don't know who they are and so this press is kind of a bridge into that world and I think of the writers that we've published as really kind of great artists of our time like the first book we published by by Alicia Harris and I feel like she's like the Brecht of today and everyone should read her work and she's she's now quite 
widely recognized in the theater, especially and and beyond. Um, but we have a whole catalog of books and you can visit all of our books there at threeholepress.org. And yes, my I live and breathe books all day. <laughs> I will provide links to that in the the show notes so everybody can find you. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for tying all of this together. It feels so beautiful to be seen that way. <laughs> oh, this was such a pleasure. I love the book. Rachel Catter Nailbuff. Thank you so much. Thank you, Marie. Thank you again. That was Rachel Cater Nailbuff. The book is Our Bread Book. It's out and available now and published by Simon & Schuster. In addition to our Patreon page, you can also follow us on our websites. Barbara's is barbarademarcobarrett.com. Mine is mariestone.com, two R's in Marie. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.com. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week and thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.